You're listening to Kingdom, Empire and Plus Ultra, Conversations on the History of Portugal and Spain, 1415 to 1898, a podcast series brought to you by UCD School of History and HistoryHub.ie. We're speaking today with Professor Flora Casson. Professor Casson is Assistant Professor of History and Vanderhorst Fellow in Jewish History and Culture at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. A native of Antwerp in Belgium, she received her PhD in History and Judaic Studies from the New York University in 2008. Her research has been supported by fellowships and grants from the Belgian Academy of Rome, the Medieval Academy of America, the Memorial Foundation for Jewish Culture and the Vidal Sassoon Centre for the Study of Antisemitism. Her forthcoming book with the University of Cambridge Press, Marking the Jews in Renaissance Italy, Politics, Religion and the Power Symbols, examines the roots of anti-Judaism through a study of discriminatory marks that the Jews were compelled to wear in 15th and 16th century Italy. Her current project studies Italian Jews who were spies for the King of Spain. It examines how early modern intelligence networks functioned and probes questions of Jewish identity in a time of uprootedness and competing loyalties. Professor Casson, Flora, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, you're very welcome. Today, Flora, then, we are in fact discussing your current project uh, on Italian Jewish spies in the employ of Spain. In this case, King Philip II of Spain and his Italian Jewish spy, Simon Sacerdoti. So a bitter conflict between the Spanish and Ottoman empires dominated the second half of the 16th century. And in this early modern conflict, intelligence, uh, you have pointed out, played a key role. The Duchy of Milan had fallen to Spain and for Jewish men like Simon Sacerdoti, expulsion by Spain was a very real risk. But Sacerdoti, scion to one of Milan's wealthiest Jewish families, had direct access to high level information from the wealthy Ottomans, information that was of great value to Philip and to Spain. Therefore, Sacerdoti found himself serving a king and an empire with a long history of harming the Jews while spying on the Ottomans, a power that was far more tolerant of Jews. So, Flora, a Jewish spy in the service of the Spanish king is actually a, a very curious theme. Um, can you explain for our listeners how you got interested in this man? Sure. Um, I was working in the archives in Milan. I was working at the time on uh, my dissertation on Jewish badgers, the topic of the forthcoming book. And uh, I had encountered Simon Sacerdoti because he was one of the leaders of the Jewish community. And every time the community felt threatened, felt under attack, he was one of their spokesmen who went and talked to the authorities, tried to negotiate their status and so on. Uh, but then at the end of the 16th century, when the Jews are expelled from Milan, King Philip II of Spain expels the Jews from Milan, one family stays, and that's his family. And, and I didn't know why. And it's interesting, because when you work uh, in the archives of Milan, if you look at the 15th and the early 16th century, there are a lot of documents and they're everywhere. And then after the expulsion, there's basically one fund and it all deals with the history of that one family. And so one day I was looking into that and I found a letter that says that, well, at some point our ancestor was a spy for the king of Spain. And I thought that is very interesting, but I had no other information. And about a year later, I had to finish um, my research on the Jewish badge, and I went to Spain for that, and I thought, let me ask the archivist. And I asked her if there's any information on Jewish spies, and she said to me, huh, look at that catalog there. And, you know, only a very small percentage of the archives in Simancas is catalogs. So I opened the book, and I looked for his name, and he was there. And so one thing led to the other, 
and I found a lot of information because he was he was very active. And it's very interesting. That was secret information, work he did for Spain. And that was only in Spain. It, I, I found none of that in the archives in Milan. So it, it's a very interesting, I think, a situation, even from the perspective of the con- conservation of information, that th- those secret informations, that intelligence was kept only in Spain. It's also the historian's dream, isn't it? It, it totally is. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when, when I found his name in the, in the catalog. That's wonderful. Before we begin to talk about Satcher Doty, though, uh, and Philip, can you give us a, um, a relatively brief account of Spain's um, rather complicated relationship with Jews, especially from the 15th century onwards? So um, the, the Jews have a long history in Spain, right? We know that uh, under Muslim rule, there was a large and prosperous Jewish community in Spain. We also know that uh, early in, in the process of reconquest, when Christian forces were conquering right bits by bits of, uh, of Muslim Spain, uh, they, in fact, initially welcomed the Jews. They saw them as, uh, as, as, a, as a population that could benefit them because they knew Arabic, they knew Hebrew, they could function in those different societies. And so initially things, uh, things didn't change all that much from the perspective of Jews. They were a religious minority under Muslim rule. Then they became a minority under Christian rule. But over time, the situation in uh, Christian Spain became more and more difficult for the Jews, and it ended up with a whole series of forced conversions starting in 1391, then again in 1412, and then in 1492, the Jews were expelled from Spain. But as a result of those forced conversions, you had a large group of people now in Spain called conversos, or sometimes maranos, which was a derogatory term, meant pigs, and that designated those families that had been Jewish in the past, and many people believed that they were continuing to practice Judaism in secret, although there's actually a lot of debate uh, on on the extent to which this was actually true or uh, this was the, the paranoia of the Inquisition. So what happens is that the Jews who never converted, remain Jewish, leave Spain in 1492. They're forced to. It's a a traumatic event uh, in the history of the Jews. But then there's also a lot of people who remain in Spain but have uh, some Jewish past. Uh, And and, and so that there's an inquisition in Spain that continues to uh, go after these people. And some of them think of themselves as Jewish, and so they try to get out of Spain and go to a Jewish community and become Jewish again. Others probably didn't understand, right, why uh, the Inquisition was still going after them. They they had been Christian uh, for several generations by then. So uh, there continues to be that, uh, that complicated history even after the expulsion, right? If Spain thought the expulsion means we never have to deal with Jews again, uh, they were wrong because on the one hand that conversal problem persisted, but on the other hand, Spain started growing in the 16th century. And at some point uh, you have places in Italy where you have old Jewish communities and suddenly they're Spanish. And there's no Jewish policy in Spain because Jews have been expelled. Jews aren't supposed to be 
in Spanish territory. But what happens when suddenly, 50 years later, Philip II, the Spanish king, becomes Duke of Milan? What, what, what does he do with those Jews? Does he expel them? Does he decide to have a Jewish policy? If he does, what does it mean for other Spanish territories? And, and Philip doesn't immediately decide. It takes him a couple of decades, in fact, to figure out that eventually he wants to expel the Jews from Spain. But um, it, it's a complicated, it's a complicated story. I have an article on that, uh, on that topic too, actually. Why was the 16th century considered the golden age of espionage? It's, um, well, well, espionage has always existed. I think in one of the book, the books on espionage that I read, and I don't remember which one now, uh, they say it's the, the world's second oldest profession after, after prostitution, I guess, being the first. So espionage has always existed uh, in the sense that people have information, sometimes it's valuable information, secret information, and they can sell it, they can use it as bargaining power. And so, so that's always existed. But espionage as a tool of uh, centralized states, I think that's a development that happens in the 16th century, in part because states are becoming uh, centralized. People are talking about the early modern state with stronger kings centralization of power, centralization of the military, and so on. And having uh, spying agencies is part of the process that helps kings consolidate their power. And so it becomes, I think, more established, maybe more professional in those years. Espionage seems to have been a particularly important factor in the Mediterranean and in an ongoing war uh, between the Spanish and the Ottomans. Can you provide some background information on this conflict and the importance of espionage as part of it? So the conflict between, say, the Habsburg and the Ottomans is a conflict that that goes on for two centuries. And it, it, right, it happens over land. The Austrians, the Hungarians are fighting the Ottomans on land. But then in the Mediterranean... The Ottomans are expanding in the 15th century. I think they go from having a very small fleet to having a large fleet that rivals the Spanish fleet. They start attacking islands, such as the islands of Rhodes and Cyprus, that get them closer to Italy, that get them closer to Christian territory. They, Rome feels threatened, I guess, Venetians and their trade routes feel threatened. So... Uh, that's when the Spanish Habsburg decide to intervene in the Mediterranean. And so you have a whole series of battles and clashes in the Mediterranean uh, in those years. And again, uh, spying is very important because it enables people to know, right, where are the boats, where are the forts, uh, where should we land if we want to attack that city, um, Right, having that kind of information uh, is very useful. I notice in your recently published article that you provide a brief quote from Chris R. Marlowe's 1590 play, The Jew of Malta, um, in which the main character, Barabbas, is a Jewish spy. Um, now you've noted that this representation was a sign of the times. That is, the transformation of 16th century anti-Semitic stereotypes of Jews as usurers, 
uh, host desecrators and blasphemers into spies for the Ottomans. Um, how did this association emerge? Um, to what degree was it a result of the distribution of Jewish populations in Mediterranean Europe? So I, I, I wouldn't say that it replaced those older stereotypes of Jews as users and host desecrators, but it added it added on to it. So it, it, it was a new stereotype that became quite popular and, and prominent. But the other ones didn't didn't really disappear, but that became an important one. I think for a couple of reasons. And, and one, you're right to ask about the distribution of Jews, because one of the things that happens after the expulsion is that you have uh, a large Jewish community that needs to find new places where to live. And so some are going to settle in Italy, some are going to settle in the Ottoman Empire, some are going to be in North Africa, some are going to different places in Europe, some even go to the Americas. And all these people have sometimes family relations, they know each other. And so you have, uh, as a result of the expulsion, which right, no one wanted, none of the Jews wanted, but it happened. And suddenly you have those networks that are in place and that can benefit of an opening up of trade in the 16th century. And so I think you have those Jews there. And uh, I think it's still the case today, but it probably was even more the case at the time. Uh, trade dependent very much on the exchange of information, right? Knowing uh, who has what and where the goods are coming from and what happens to the boat. So all of that was very important. And uh, here you have families and, and, and families are maybe more naturally trustworthy, trusting each other. And, and, and so there is an exchange of information, I think, between all those uh, Jewish families that have been dispersed, that's quite active and helps them uh, thrive in that new trade. So I think that's one of the factors. Another factor was that there always was, I guess, in addition to the old stereotypes of user and host desecrator, uh, an idea that Jews uh, have secrets, that they maybe know things that other people don't know, that they, they have access to some kind of uh, secret knowledge, right? Uh, at other times, uh, Christian mystics wanted to study Jewish mysticism to see if there, there, there were secrets there about right, the divine that maybe they didn't know, but that Jews had found in their own text, right? So uh, you have, uh, I think, a combination of these two coming together. And, uh, and then there's a third factor, which is that when the Jews are expelled from Spain, uh, a lot of places don't welcome them. They're not really welcome in Italy. They're not welcome in France. They're not welcome in England. Uh, there, there, there's nowhere in Europe where they, where where large numbers of, of Jews are welcomed, except in the Ottoman Empire. The, the Ottomans see uh, that as a benefit to have those Jewish communities move to uh, to their lands, and so they welcome them. They allow them to live as Jews. They uh, they even require that they move to the big cities, which they want to right repopulate, make more cosmopolitan. So uh, you have the Jews that are expelled from right the center of Spain, and they they really require to live in Istanbul and in the big uh, Ottoman cities there. And and I think that too helped that perception that all oh, all those Jews that were expelled, they're now uh, working for the Ottomans, and everything they know about us, they're telling them. 
So a lot of things are coming together. Yeah. So there's a perception then in Spain that the Jews are working for the Ottomans. Yeah. In reality, how were relations between the Ottomans and the Jews? They actually were quite good in, in those years. The, the Ottoman Empire was a multicultural empire in many ways. I think, right, what, what had happened in, in Spain was maybe an attempt to, to, how should I say this, become a more homogenous uh, empire where everybody is Spanish and Christian and, 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 and they didn't want Jews there, they didn't want the Muslims there. But just by virtue of where it is and the populations that live there, uh, you have Christians, Muslims, Greeks, Jews, Turks, you have a whole combination of populations in the Ottoman Empire. And I think historically, those kind of situations have worked better for Jews, right? It's always been harder for Jews when they're the only minority, as they were in many places in Europe uh, in that time. There's no other minorities. But in Spain, in the Middle Ages, you have a Muslim minority, a Christian minority, a Jewish minority. Typically, those situations have worked better for Jewish communities, and, and the Ottoman Empire provided that in those years. Let's talk briefly about Philip II now. Philip, of course, was a son of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, and he ruled Spain from 1556 until his death in 1598. And under Philip's reign, uh, Spain reached the, the peak of its influence in Europe and in the New World, um, amassing territories and political influence to a degree previously unknown. And in addition to being associated with this far-reaching hegemony, Philip is also closely tied to attempts to suppress uh, Protestantism, as well as his continuing efforts to confront um, Ottoman expansion into Europe. And in addition to all of this, of course, he's uh, also credited with creating the first quote-unquote modern uh, intelligence services. Um, can you elaborate on this? Yeah, he did. He did a lot of things, right? <laughs> um, yes. So intelligence became very important for him because his empire was so large, because he was trying to run it from Madrid in, in a centralized way. And so he had everywhere, he was sending ambassadors, he had committees, and what he wanted them to do is collect information and send it back to Madrid, where he and his counselors could examine it and then make, uh, make, make decisions. And in addition, he had a, a secretive nature, or maybe a sometimes a little bit uh, obsessive nature, uh, some scholars have, have speculated. And so I think he very much relied on uh, secret information. He also relied on it as a, as a way, I think, of protecting his power, where people had to guess what he was thinking, who was giving him the most valuable secrets. Uh, they were competing at court for... Uh, for his attention and having secret information was one way of doing that. It was one way of getting the attention of the king. But then once you go to Italy, you go to far away uh, territories that belong to Spain. It was also a way of uh, knowing what's going on there, trying to control movements of people, trying to control the population, trying to protect uh, newly conquered territory from being reconquered. Uh, by other people. And of course, uh, Spain is growing, but uh, the French are trying to grow as well. And the Ottomans are there too. And the British Empire is growing and trying to take over the sea. And the Dutch are 
price starting to venture out on the seas as well. So there's a lot of there's a lot of competition and uh, information, secret information, can give you an edge in those kind of uh, atmospheres. You touched briefly on Philip's personality. Um, right. To what degree was his involvement with espionage a product of the realities of power, or just related to his own suspicious nature? Philip the Prudent, as he was called. <laughs> right. I, you know, I, I, my sense is that it was a combination. Um, I think the realities of power, and it's still the case today, is that uh, intelligence is intelligence information is terribly important and, and enables one to keep an edge over one's enemies. So I think uh, that's part of it. And then many different scholars have commented on his obsessive nature, on how much he liked secrecy, on even his way of working. He, he, didn't, he, he didn't like to travel. He didn't like big meetings. He liked to work in his office read documents, read reports, ask questions. And, and I have seen it myself in matters that I would think, why is Philip even interested in what happens to right, a few hundred Jews in Milan? But on some of those reports, he's, he's commenting in the margin and you have his right, loopy, funny handwriting in the margin of reports on a tiny Jewish community in Milan. And this is a man who's ruling an empire that's going from the Americas to the Philippines, covering half of Europe, right? Uh, but, but that's how he was. He, he, he wanted to know everything. He wanted to keep control. And he spent long hours in his study, reading everything he got, commenting on it, asking questions, and, uh, and, and making decisions. And, and, and a number of people have connected those two things, right? His development of intelligence network and his obsessive secretive nature. And it seems to me there's something to that. You know, I, it's hard for me to sort of psychoanalyze someone uh, 500 years later. I don't know him personally, but, but, but when I read those scholars, I, I think the there was something true there. I think they hit on something right. I know from my own work that Philip employed clandestine measures to obtain closely guarded maps and nautical rutters from his Spanish rivals and was also obsessive about preventing geographic knowledge in, uh, of Spanish possessions in America and the Pacific from falling into the hands of rival powers. But can you give us some examples of how he encouraged and fostered secrecy and espionage in Europe? Uh, so he instructed um, all he, that all his, to all his ambassadors when he sent them to their post, he said to them, I want them to be my, I want you to be my spy there. And it was part of their job explicitly to be his ears and eyes abroad and send back all that information to Madrid. They were also instructed to write verified information, verify the trustworthiness of spies. So that was explicitly part of their job description uh, when he sent them to their different posts. In addition, um, the material I've seen suggests that at least Jews, because I've worked on Jews, knew that he was interested in secret information. And I found many letters of Jews sent to Philip or sent to the governor in which they say, you know, can you tell the king that I know the secret to transform 
uh, salt water into right clear water and I have right that special technology and I think the king will be interested or uh, I have a cousin somewhere who knows the secret on how to transform uh, steel into into silver. Uh, I think the king will be interested. And every once in a while, the king responds to to, to those requests. So there there there, there are a lot of uh, offers of secret information that get sent uh, to uh, to to Madrid, probably because they know that that's what he's interested in, and they never know that suddenly he's like. Oh, actually, I'm interested in that, and right, they get his attention. So <laughs> he, he, as you as you've said, he preferred his informants to be what he called um, personas de calidad, or persons of quality or quality people. Um, what did he mean by this? So one of the the characteristics of early modern spying, and we're talking about espionage, but we can't imagine that all of it was a professional spying organization with people being trained as spies and and, and working for uh, for one country. A lot of it was just the exchange of information. For example, merchants were traveling, they heard something here, they heard something there, and suddenly they were in possession of valuable information. They could go to an ambassador and say, you know, you might want to know what I heard when I was traveling there and there, and sometimes they get paid for it and so on. So a lot of the the early modern modern espionage we're talking about is just that, people who happen to have had access to information and have access to a Spanish official uh, who they can tell it to. Now, there is another category of people who start to become what we would think of as modern spy, people who do it uh, on a regular basis, who try to do it professionally, who for whom it becomes uh, really what they do and the purpose of their work. And, and those people, uh, Philip wanted to be able to trust them. And so he wanted them to be Spanish. He wanted them to be Christian. He wanted them to be part of at least uh, the middle or even probably more upper middle class, if not part of the, if, if not part of the nobility. So uh, people who would really become agents who work for him regularly, he wanted them to be personas de calidad. And, and that's part of why I think Simon Sacerdoti is, uh, is unique in that he managed to really work for Philip on a very regular basis without being Spanish or Christian or part of the Spanish middle class. So that, that that's an interesting part of his story. Uh, do we know anything about Philip's uh, own personal opinions on Jews? He expels the Jews from Milan at the very end of his reign. He reportedly was very supportive when his father, Charles the Charles the Fifth, expelled the Jews from Naples. But but what is interesting, and I've looked at thirty years of correspondence between Madrid and Milan about the expulsion. So he becomes Duke of Milan, I think, in the mid-1540s. He only expels them uh, in 1491. So, so, so that's a long time period. And then they're discussing it on and off through those years. And he's asking a lot of questions, and he wants to know everything about the Jews of Milan, but he never says in any of these letters, and I don't like them, and I hate them, and the Jews did this, or the Jews did that. So he doesn't actually give his personal opinion in any of those letters. But eventually he expels 
the Jews. So he must have thought that right their place was not uh, in in the Spanish Empire. At the same time, there are Jewish communities in Spanish possessions in North Africa, in Tunisia, and they stay there for an additional hundred years. So he's. I suspect his personal feelings were negative, but in practice, he also was very practical. And I think if he thought it was to his advantage to have a Jewish community in Milan, as long as he thought they contributed economically, he was willing to keep them despite his own negative feelings. So it's it's a complex, um, I would say, position that he's taking. Okay, but he didn't necessarily uh, put his opinions into writing, so we don't really. He didn't. Yeah, he, I haven't. I haven't seen it. Okay. Okay. In, in literally forty years of back and forth correspondence, I, I didn't see it. So let's finally turn to Simon Sacerdoti now. Um, now, although he was born in Alessandria, uh, sometime in the fifteen thirties, um, his family wasn't originally from Italy. And you have said that the sacerdotes were probably of Spanish origin and were expelled from Castile or Aragon in 1492, settling in Italy uh, thereafter. What can you tell us about them uh, from this time? So the reason I suspect, uh, there, there are two reasons I suspect that they were expelled from Spain. One is uh, at some point in one of the letters that go back and forth between Milan and Madrid, uh, a Spanish ambassador says that uh, Simon Sacerdoti has relatives in Spain, that he, he implies that right he, he's descended from a Spanish family. And the second reason is that um, one, one, other, one Jew who writes about the family, Yosef Akoen, was a very prominent uh, Sephardic or descendant of Spanish Jews who lived uh, in the area too, and we know that they had, they tended to gather together in, uh, in in those communities in Italy. So we had the Italian Jews, the Spanish Jews, the German Jews. Uh, they, they mixed, but they also uh, communally liked to 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 be among um, among themselves. So so these are the two reasons I think he 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 was from Spain. Once the family settles in Alessandria, they seem to have relatively quickly opened uh, a small loan bank and became very successful. They were making small loans to poor people in the countryside, uh, but, but were fairly successful and at some point started to engaging in the wheat trade. And that's when I see uh, that the business seems to be growing to the next level because suddenly... Uh, I find them in the documentation in relation with the Duke and then later with the Spanish governors because wheat imports were very important in Italy in the time. And so I think that becoming engaged in that business suddenly brought them in touch with the authorities. Then I guess there's another thing that brought them in touch with the authorities is once the the, the war uh, started ramping up between Spain and the Dutch, and a lot of soldiers were transiting through Milan, uh, going northwards. Uh, they also helped supply those soldiers, and so did they become involved in different businesses of interest to Spanish authorities. Okay. Uh, now, soon after Simon's birth, 
um, the Spanish Habsburgs took control of the Duchy of Milan and the Emperor Charles V uh, named his young son, Philip, Philip II, um, as the Duke. How did all of this come about? So I guess we have to backtrack a little bit, right? The Italian wars at the very end of the 15th century, first the French invade Milan and they stay there for maybe, I think, uh, 12, 15 years, then they leave, then they come back. But so uh, around, I think, the 1520s, the Charles V, the, the Austrian Habsburg, take over Milan from the French. But what they do then is they don't, uh, Charles doesn't uh, make himself the Duke of Milan. He gives it back to a descendant of the Sforza Duca family, Francesco II. And so Francesco II becomes Duke of Milan again, but under under Habsburg influence, obviously. And when he dies and he doesn't have uh, a male heir to succeed him, uh, Philip becomes the Duke of Milan. So, so, so it's it's basically dynastic, uh, European dynastic wars and, and succession that, that make it happen here. What impact did the Spanish Habsburg annexation of Milan have on the Jewish population then? I, I think it was a difficult, uh, it was a difficult impact. Uh, the, you know, Spain had expelled the Jews. Uh, it, we, it was still the law in Spain that no Jews can live on Spanish territory. Now, of course, they come in, they come to Milan and there is a Jewish community there. And, and, and right, it's not clear. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of insecurity. The way Jews lived in Italy is that they, they negotiated multi-year contracts for their residency in Italy. And so that was the custom. So they had done it with the Sforza Duke. They had done it with the Visconti Duke before them. And so they, every few years, they negotiate what they call the condata, saying, you know, Jews can live here. We'll pay that much in taxes. In exchange, we can have a cemetery. We can do this. We can have a prayer place and so on. Soon after Philip becomes the... Duke of Milan, that that payment increases to uh, I don't remember the numbers, but but a crazy amount, which, which I think uh, it gives us a hint of the anxiety among the Jews of Milan. They they didn't know really what's going to happen, and it was a new situation for Spain too. They had been used to not have Jews anymore, except for the conversos who nominally were Christian, and so that's a new situation there. Ultimately, the impact is tragic because the Jews have to leave Milan, but they still managed to live there for several decades. So I think initially it wasn't, there was a lot of fear, but then it seemed as if things were going to continue along the lines that they had before because Philip agrees to sign a condata, he agrees to renew it several times. Uh, but over time and in the background, there's that correspondence and discussion over their expulsion and that I think weighs on their situation there too. Um, now this annexation however was not necessarily unfortunate for the Sacerdoti family was it? No they actually did did quite well uh, through that time period and in part what they were able to do is build establish good relations with the Spanish governors with successive Spanish governors and, uh, you know, when you look at the Spanish Empire, there's the directives and the views that come from Madrid. But then there's a person who needs to manage the whole thing on the ground. And Milan is a large 
uh, Renaissance state with uh, a big city in Milan, but many small towns, a church, people with competing interests, and Jews there in the middle. And, and, and so sometimes I think the interests of the governor or what would help the, govern, the governor manage the state effectively was not necessarily in line with the directives coming from Madrid. And oftentimes, I think it was the case uh, in terms of Jewish policy. And so when you have uh, a family of Jewish merchants that's importing wheat, that's supplying Spanish troops, uh, a local governor will actually be happy to work with them and um, use their skills and, and sometimes they found themselves in the middle of power plays also between, right, maybe Italian merchants didn't want to help the Spanish because they felt they shouldn't be there. But then, right, the Jewish merchants were willing to do it. So uh, you, you have a complex situation there. What do we know about Simon's life and career before his employment by the Spanish crown? We know that he he went into the family business. He worked with his father. His father, uh, Vitale, in fact, he's the one who started the business. He's the one who was initially successful, established uh, those relations with the governor. And, and, and he became a, a leader of the Jewish community there, not in religious terms. He wasn't a rabbi, but in political terms. Whenever there was an issue, and I've looked at it uh, when I studied the Jewish bad, right? Jews obviously didn't want to wear a yellow badge or a yellow hat. And so whenever there was an attempt to force them to wear it, uh, they tried to negotiate. Maybe we can pay, maybe we can figure out something. And, and oftentimes Vitali was one of the negotiators then, there. So his name keeps uh, popping up in those kinds of situations. And initially we see uh, Simone, his son, just being with him and doing that with him. At some point, he also became engaged in uh, spying and different activities. But I think initially, he does very much what a son would have done in those years. And how did he eventually come to be in the service of Philip II then? I think he started out by being by by, by providing services for the governor for the governor of Milan. He was traveling, he had information here and there, and, and, and that's how he started out. He also established a relation with the Duke of Savoy, who was a cousin of Philip II, and also provided information uh, to him. So, so, so my, I, I think that's how it started. And as he, I suspect, started traveling more, started becoming, started realizing how valuable intelligence information is, he probably started actively looking for some, because at some point he comes up and says, look, I have a plan, I have information about this fort in the, in the Mediterranean, I know how you can take it. So here he, he offers uh, military uh, secret information. So so I think it, it probably started on an ad hoc basis. Oh, I heard this when I traveled. Are you interested? But as it worked, um, he became more interested in it. I suspect, although I don't have anything that he personally wrote, I only have letters written about him by Spanish or Italian officials, but I suspect that he must have had this kind of maybe adventure character and, and enjoyed also the travel, the secrecy. And that's how I imagine it. 
but of course, I, I don't know. An early modern James Bond. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, now, according to your research, uh, he seems to have been involved in quite a bit of travel as part of his espionage work. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Um, how much do we know about what he got up to on his travels and uh, where can this information actually be found? I found most of this information in Spanish archives. And it's quite interesting because when I started out, I found his name, as I said earlier, in, in the catalog. And so I found a couple of documents that had his name on it, right? Uh, this Simon Sacerdoti went here or went there for us and gave us information. And then as I followed the leads of other names that I found there or places or, or events, uh, I came across a lot of documents that just were mentioned. Oh, and the Jew who came back from uh, Jerusalem or the Jew who came back from Zurich, all right, told us X, Y, Z, or the Jew told us, told us that. And so initially I thought, wow, I found a whole network of Jewish spies there. But then as I, as I sat down and started comparing all those references, I realized it's all the same. And here's a man who goes to the Middle East and back. He goes to Central Europe and back. He goes to Switzerland and back. Uh, he travels even to Spain at some point. He comes back. So he traveled a lot and came back. And uh, to me, that was quite remarkable to realize how much he traveled and, and where he went. Again, I don't have personal information. He doesn't talk about how he did it and how he went but yeah he, he definitely was all over the place it sounds terribly glamorous doesn't it? it it does but then again you read books on uh merchants and people in the mediterranean in the 16th century and 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 i think that's quite common those people were traveling a lot going back and forth uh and and i think a number of scholars in recent years have dispelled the impression that Europe, there was Europe on one side and there were the Ottomans on the other and people didn't go back and forth. There was a lot of travel back and forth. And um, I think someone said to me once, you know, you can be a Jew in one port and you put on a turban and you're a Muslim in the next port. And right, no one would know. <laughs> no one would know the difference. <laughs> no. Uh, Satcher Doty, in his letters, he claims to have had access to a Joseph Nassi. Um, who was Nassi and why was he a target of Satcher Doty's efforts? So Nassi is probably the most famous and most powerful Jew in those years. He comes from a family of Portuguese uh, Jews who have build a very large bank. They're conversos, so they lived in Portugal pretending to be Christian. And uh, in fact, they were secretly Jewish. And so at some point they have to leave Portugal because it's too dangerous. The Inquisition is after them. They move to Antwerp. They live there for a few years. The business continues. But then again, the Inquisition comes after them. They move to, they move to Italy, to Venice, and eventually they end up in the Ottoman Empire. And they were very wealthy. They had banks uh, in a number of places in Europe. They were lending money uh, to the king of France, to the, to people in the Ottoman Empire, and and uh, Joseph Nassi, the, the the nephew of the, the 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 people who started the family and who became its leader after they died, he actually became one of the advisors of the Sultan in those years, and so he was a very important character. Uh, 
uh, he had access to a lot of information. And apparently, Sacerdoti's father was uh, had a connection with him. And at some point, uh, he says, look, I went to the Middle East. I know people who work closely with uh, Joseph Nassi. They can give me information. I can give it to you. So he used it as as to to improve to increase his value. I think in the eyes of um, of Spanish spy handlers or ambassadors, because to have access to someone whom everyone knows is very close to the Sultan and and knows information uh, that would be obviously very valuable in those years. And did Sacerdoti in fact manage to extract valuable information from Nasi's network? I suspect that he did. Yes, I, I suspect that. Um, uh, you know, I don't know for sure. He doesn't say this explicitly comes from there, but I suspect, given how much he traveled back and forth, that he might have. At some point, there's a letter sent by the Duke of Savoie, and the Duke of Savoie tries to create a sort of free port near Nice, and a free port at the time uh, was designed to attract Muslim and Jewish merchants to sort of improve the economy of the port with promises that the Inquisition wouldn't be there. And and he tries to collaborate with Nassi on that. He really wants to improve commerce in uh, in Savoie, which in many ways was still maybe a little backwards and more rural area at the time. And the person he sends there to negotiate is uh, Simon Sacerdoti. And in his letter, he says, I'm sending you uh, this man. I know you had a good relation with his father. I hope you will right, interact with him uh, in the same way. So, so there's definitely, I, I suspect that he, he, he could say he had learned things from there that he could report back. One of his more audacious plans, in fact, reads like something from a spy novel. And this is his plan in 1570 for a Spanish invasion of Bejaia a poor city in Algeria, which he relayed to the Duke of Savoy, uh, who was Philip's cousin. Can you describe uh, this plan? Yes, yeah, so it's, uh, it's, it's the first thing I read about him and that got me really interested in him. So he comes back and he says, look, uh, I know that the port of Bajaya is badly guarded. There are only uh, 50 old Janissaries, old Ottoman soldiers who are guarding the port. And uh, it would be quite easy for Spain to reconquer it. And this is uh, really, you know, the big, the big Spanish victory in the Mediterranean at Lepanto happens in 1571. So tensions were high. People were preparing for, um, for, 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 for this war. And, and just at the time, he says, look, I know how you can take the city. And then he says, and I even uh, have a plan that I can help you put into effect. Um, I know the the caliph in in that port, and I have arranged already for two boats full of soldiers to come with me, and I will go in with a few men, and we will bring gifts to the caliph, and once inside, we will kill him, and then we will uh, send a signal to the men hidden in the boats that they can come and storm the city. So it's, it's really a Trojan horse, a plan that he has to to capture the city there, and and the king is interested, and so there are a lot of letters coming back and forth. The king wants to know 
Uh, is he trustworthy? Uh, who's going to provide the boats? How are the weapons going to come? And then he explains they're hidden in barrels of wine with a special compartment. And so <laughs> it's, 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 quite, it's quite interesting. Eventually he doesn't do it because I think him and one of his collaborators get caught and then uh, the Spanish get cold feet, even though they, 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 they get freed and they say that they haven't said anything, but uh, the Spanish get cold feet at that point. But it went quite far and we, we, we learned a lot of details. You were, you were talking about Philip's efforts against Protestants and he said, you know, the same technique that I would use to smuggle the weapons, that's how... Protestant books are smuggled into Spain in barrels of wine with a special compartment in which you can hide the book while keeping them dry from the wine. So That's extraordinary. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah. Uh, Sacerdoti also play a part, of course, in the Duke of Savoy's plans to attract uh, Jews to the duchy, um, which would seem to have been contrary to Spanish wishes. Um, can you tell us about this? Yeah, so that was the, the free port I was referring to, right? When he uh, proposed to open a free port where Muslim and Jewish merchants would be invited to live and have freedom of religion and there would be no inquisition, uh, the idea is, again, right, these are people with networks, with experience in uh, Mediterranean commerce, and it would benefit the state of Savoy to have them there. Uh, Spain is unhappy because Spain is in Milan, Spain is in Genova, it's right next door, and Spanish soldiers are immediately writing to the king and saying, hey, you know, something something not quite right is happening here. Uh, the Duke of Savoie is trying to attract uh, those merchants. They come here and they, they claim that they are uh, Spanish merchants, but then once they get to Savoy, they say that they're Jewish and uh, we don't like that. We're supposed to protect the borders here. We're supposed to right, protect Spanish interests. And suddenly we have those people who claim they're Spanish merchants get there. And in fact, they're Jewish and that can't happen. And so Philip, in fact, puts pressure uh, successfully to uh, put an end to that plan. Right. And now this failed plan, as well as the failed plan to invade Bejaia, uh, might have resulted in uh, Simon's expulsion from Milan. But uh, this didn't actually happen. Uh, why not? So I, w what did happen is that the king became uninterested in the information, at least for a number of years he became. So this this happens in, right in the 1572, 1573. And the king after that, right in 1574, Simon again tries to come up with a plan to capture the port of uh, Bejaia, which he had tried before. And then the king answers on one of the letters he scribbles in the margin, I don't trust him, right? He's, he's, he doesn't have a good reputation in Madrid. And so I think, I suspect that's because of the port city. But as I mentioned before, sometimes it was in the interest of an ambassador or a governor to work with him because he had information and, and, and that information could then be sent to Madrid and, 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 and benefit the governor or the ambassador who had provided the information. So even though the king says, well, I don't trust him anymore, in many other circumstances, uh, the governor or an ambassador 
finds it useful to continue to work with him. And so he continues to work in Milan, even though sort of those big plans that would actually involve the highest levels of uh, Spanish power, we don't see that much, but we see him uh, going on different missions for the Spanish governor in the late 1570s and into the 1580s. So he continues to work for Spain locally, and the expulsion didn't come until uh, the 1590s. So he's still considered quite useful at this point. He's still considered quite useful at this point, so much so that when the expulsion is decreed in 1591, uh, the Jews of Milan ask him to go to Madrid. And there he, he makes the case to the king that him and his family uh, have worked for the crown for many, many years and have been very useful to the Spanish crown. And it's interesting because I have a report that uh, the Jews sent through the Milanese Senate. So the Jews of Milan sent their own reports trying to convince the king not to expel them. And they talk about right things that Jews do all over the state of Milan and trying to explain that they're useful and it benefits uh, the state of Milan and the Spanish crown to keep them. And then I have next to that Sacerdotis uh, report in which you know, he starts by saying, well, you know, the Jews have been in Milan for many years and they're very useful. And then he says, but in particularly my family, we've done this and we've done that. And then different counselors of the king actually certify all the things that uh, he's done. And so I have four reports there in which they say, yes, it's true. He was involved in this affair and in this affair and in that affair. And, and so I think at that time, uh, the king agrees, in fact, to give him a lifelong pension and allows him to stay in Milan. Speaking of pensions, right? as all historians of early modern Spain can uh, probably confirm, um, servants and agents of the crown often spent years trying to collect payments and pensions owed to them uh, by the rather parsimonious authorities. And of course, Satcher Doty was no exception. Um, can you tell us about his struggles in this regard? And was he eventually successful in getting what was owed to him? I think he was. But yes, I, uh, you're right. Um, a lot of the time that he was in Madrid, and I think he spent maybe uh, almost a year there talking with counselors and pleading his case. But a lot of the time that he was there was spent securing those payments uh, for him and his family. And then I have records in Milan saying we paid this uh, for that mission to uh, Simon Sacerdoti. So I have records uh, that confirm that right those payments that he was asking for in Madrid were actually paid um, paid in Milan. I don't know if I, sh I should, in fact, sit down and compare and maybe figure out right, the percentage of which uh, th that that was actually paid out. But 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 I think he he, he got a, a good number of them while uh, while he was there. How he was able to do it was he more successful than other people? I, I don't know because I only looked at him, but uh, I know that he definitely got some of these some of these payments. So finally, how would you assess uh, Satcher Doty's life and career in the wider context of Spain's relationship with the Jews and their place in the Spanish intelligence networks of the 16th century? 
So I would say a couple of things. I would say, um, you know, he's not the only spy, Jewish spy, who worked for, from, for Spain. I, I've seen a couple other ones. There's one a century, in the 17th century, Palash, a book was written about him. So he's not entirely uh, unique in what he did, but there aren't all that many, right? Once you start looking at the articles, at the evidence in the archives, it's always the same names that keep coming back of, uh, I'm thinking the 16th century, his name, Yosef Nassi, there's even some suspicion that maybe he at some point was a spy for Spain, but uh, someone called Solomon Ashkenazi, David Pazzi. So it's always those names that keep coming back. So he wasn't the only one, uh, but there weren't all that many Jews who actually worked in that capacity. I think people who were merchants and every once in a while, once in a blue moon gave information uh, that that probably happened frequently. But someone who would work regularly as a spy, I, I think that's more unique, at least in the in the 16th century. As I said earlier, in terms of his traveling, he's going back and forth. He he's quite maybe typical of Jewish merchants in the Mediterranean in those areas. They often functioned as middlemen between um, North Africa and Europe, between the Ottoman area and the Christian area. So we find them as merchants, we find them as translators, we, we find them in, in a number of capacities as middlemen. But the question I'm asking in, in the article is, is maybe in a way a little bit pushing back against that idea of a connected Mediterranean where one's origin or religion or or ethnicity didn't matter anymore because in that Mediterranean, everybody was uh, mixing and people were working together. And I think that's true. But but the question I had when I was working on Sacerdot is, how does someone participate in that connected and multicultural Mediterranean while still maybe holding on to one's own uh, history and identity, right? Does that... You sometimes read those books and, and have the impression that all of that disappears. And once you're in that connected and multicultural milieu, one's origins, one's own uh, cultural religion doesn't matter anymore. And, 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 and what I sought to understand also in that article is how, uh, how maybe it still did matter and how maybe he still did approach some of those questions as a Jew or how being a Jew made him uh, made it maybe easier or sometimes more difficult for him to interact in, in those milieus. Flora Casson's article, Philip II of Spain and his Italian Jewish spy, appears in volume 21 of the Journal of Early Modern History. Flora Casson, thank you very much. Thank you.